Welcome to the UNT BSM audio resources. If you want more information on the BSM, you can go to untbsm.com. Thanks for listening. All right, you guys want to get started? We'll get started. Let's pray real quick. God, thank you for another day to come and gather together as your people and to hear from you as you speak through your word. Lord, I pray that you would sustain us and that you would grow us in our faith and our obedience, our willingness to follow you and to turn away from our sin. Um, God, I pray that you would use the words of your prophet Isaiah today to instruct us and convict us, but God, also to give us hope, um, to see the hope that we have stored up for us in the true, true Messiah, the true Son of David, and your Son Jesus, and all that he will accomplish and has accomplished already for us uh, in, in inaugurating his kingdom through his cross, through his resurrection, through his glorification. God, would you cause us to think about these things, even as we look at this text today. Bless our study in this book throughout this semester. Bear fruit with it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So... <clears throat> We did a little bit of an introduction last week in the book of Isaiah, and today we are actually going to jump in. So if you've got your Bible, turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. Interesting uh, thought. How do you pronounce this name? Jeremiah. Okay, Uh, What's another one? How do you pronounce this one? Wait. How do you pronounce that? Nehemiah. Nehemiah. So, you ever hear British people, they call it Isaiah? That's probably more accurate. Right? Isaiah. Um, Just a little fun. I'm not going to call it Isaiah. I wish I could. That would be way cooler. But we're just going to call it Isaiah. I just, I wish. I wish we could call it Isaiah. Um, I want to commend to you guys, if you're really interested and you want to learn more about the book of Isaiah. This is a fantastic resource, okay? This is um, called The Prophecy of Isaiah. I almost said Isaiah. Uh, by Alec Motyer, all right? And uh, this is going to be what I'm relying on primarily. So you can know that, that if you're wondering where some of the structure and breakdown stuff's coming from, a lot of it's coming from this. It's an awesome book, okay? Um, so you can get that. You can probably... Paul, did you get this? Yeah. How much was it? You know, it's probably like 20 bucks. This one, I got a used one. That's why it's torn. You can get a used one for like $20. So really, really helpful. Always good to have resources. Remember, we said that when we looked at prophets, that the prophets are speaking into specific contexts. And so it's really important that you have, um, have some kind of help. That's why we're reading it together, that hopefully we can provide some of that context for you as you're reading it. But um, any tools that you can have, study Bibles, uh, online resources that you find helpful, good friends that have gone that way before you, but... but Use, use those other resources. Otherwise, you're watching the Super Bowl halftime show and you just don't know what's happening. Okay? You're like, what are these guys talking about? What fumble? I don't know. So we're in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 1. Look at verse 1. Here we go. It's always fun to start a new book in manna. This is awesome. Okay. So it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So let's talk right there. That's sort of the title, like the heading of the book. In Hebrew, this was the original title. It's the vision of Isaiah, 
and he's dating it for us. So it was, he served as a prophet in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Okay, so remember, Judah is a southern kingdom. So Isaiah is going to focus mostly on what's happening in the southern kingdom, and specifically in Jerusalem. And actually, there's going to be some evidence to suggest that Isaiah was probably part of a prominent family in Jerusalem. That's why he's listed as son of Amos. He's got kind of an unusual access to the king and places where um, only the king would be. So Isaiah was probably from maybe a political family or something like that. But he's, he's ministering during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. You can find about those reigns in 2 Kings chapters 15 through 20 and 2 Chronicles chapters 26 through 32. So I would encourage you to go back and read what's going on in those chapters. And, and just if you do that, know that Uzziah's name is also Azariah. He's got two name, kind of nicknames, okay? So if you read about Azariah, that's Uzziah. But what's interesting, turn to chapter 6 really quick. I want you to do this. Turn to chapter 6. And chronologically, okay, because Isaiah says he, um, he served during the reign of Uzziah, and actually he um, served at the very end of Uzziah's uh, reign. Chronologically, Chapter 6 is the very, very beginning of Isaiah's ministry. So look at chapter 6 real quick. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I, this is Isaiah talking, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. So chapter 6 is when Isaiah describes his being called as a prophet. This is the first time that he has a vision of the Lord, is in the year that King Uzziah died. Okay? But why is it six chapters into the book of Isaiah. Chronologically, this is the very beginning. This is where Isaiah's story starts, but it's six chapters in. So what's going on with chapters one through five? And what we're going to find is actually throughout the whole book of Isaiah, Isaiah is not very concerned with chronology. Isaiah is not very concerned with, well, then I had this vision, and after that I had this vision, and then I had this vision. What Isaiah has done, what this book is, is this compilation of a lifetime, a ministry's worth of prophecies that Isaiah had that Isaiah is compiling at the end and putting together, okay? Or, um, so, so he's, he's putting them together, and he's not putting them together as, with any kind of concern for what, what happened first or second or anything like that. And sometimes in the West, as modern thinkers, we really like stories that, you know, when we, when we want to put a history together, we put it in chronological order, and we think that's the only way that you should do it. Okay, but even, even today, we don't, um, we don't always do this. Have you ever watched like a really good movie? Okay, and sometimes they kind of flash around, don't they? Right? Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about like Fast and Furious, right? That's all just one, you know, that's, that's easy storytelling. But really complex storytelling, sometimes they kind of jump around, don't they? Like, has anybody seen the movie Tree of Life? Anybody seen that? Yeah. Brad Pitt's in it, Sean Penn's in it. That thing is a total mess chrono- chronologically. Okay, it jumps to the future. It goes to back to like the dinosaurs. It's talking about this guy when he's a little kid. It's talking about when he's a grown up. And it's going around. It has no thought to what happened in order. But the way that they put different things together, what happens and how they're butted up against each other, the contrasts or the similarities, doesn't matter when it happened, but what it looks like next to each other, that's where the storytelling comes from. So it's sort of like a mosaic, and you see, you see the point as certain things are put next to each other. That's how the whole book of Isaiah is, okay? If, if you need to know when something is happening, Isaiah will tell you when it's happening. Otherwise, all you need to know is, he's, he, all you need to be paying attention to is what, what these different kind of things look like jammed up against each other. Does that make sense? 
So hopefully that will help you as you're reading this. So chapters 1 through 5 are sort of like the author's preface. So if the real beginning is in chapter 6, and it is, that's when Isaiah says, this is when I got my vision. This is when God started telling me what I was supposed to say. Chapters 1 through 5 is him sort of painting the scene for this is what Judah and this is what Israel is like. Okay, this is, this is the prevailing cultural climate at the time that I received my ministry, my vision. Okay, so this is, this is the context that God is speaking into through Isaiah. Does that make sense? So chapters 1 through 5 are sort of setting the scene. So it's like the opening scene in a movie where it maybe is a little disconnected from where the actual beginning is, but it's, it's setting the, the stage emotionally, it's setting the stage in tension, it's setting the stage in, in the actual setting, all of that. Does that make sense? So that's what we're getting into in chapter 1. So look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Um, God's going to, this is, remember, it's, it's Isaiah talking, but it's also the Lord speaking through him. And, and it's going to open up with sort of a courtroom case. Okay, so God is going to invoke the heavens and the earth to listen. And they're going to kind of act like the jury in a courtroom. And, and who's the person that's being uh, convicted of a crime here? Well, it's God's people. Okay, it's, it's Israel, it's Judah. So God is, God is making a case against Israel and Judah, and the whole creation is kind of the jury. That's the scene that's been set up. Okay? So he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey knows its master's crib, but Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field like a besieged city. So this is the evidence that, that God is laying out against Israel and against, against his people, okay? And so he's, he's calling them to sort of reason with him, to think through what's going on. Here's my case, okay? And he kind of talks about three things. So in the very beginning, kind of verses two and three, he says, I brought up children, but they've rebelled against me. Okay, so who are his children? Israel. When did Israel really become God's children? Okay, with Jacob, maybe a little bit after Jacob. What, what would be that point where, where we could say a nation got birthed that was Israel? Yeah, with the Exodus, okay? When God delivered them out, remember they were just part of Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt. God delivered them out of Exodus and he made them a nation. And kind of in that sense, he says, these are my, these are my children. And it's in the same way for us, isn't it? That when we are delivered, when we are redeemed from sin, we become God's children, okay? And so there's a little difference, in, and we have to kind of, there's a tension in this, because Isaiah is written to a community, 
okay? And so we can't like overly personalize it. So he's talking about a whole nation, okay? And we're going to find as we go through that some in this nation are believing, but the majority of this nation are not believing. And yet God refers to the whole nation as his children. He says, so I've brought up children and they've rebelled against me. And he says, sin is sort of against common sense. Like he says, even a donkey knows who its master is and knows to obey it. But my very own children have rebelled against me. So he goes into that point. He says in verse 4 that they're a sinful nation. And he calls them, look, an offspring of evildoers and the children who deal corruptly. So he's saying they're not acting like my children. They're acting like the children of evildoers. Okay? He says they have forsaken the Lord. They have forsaken Yahweh. So not only have they rebelled, but they've actually like forsaken their father. And then this is really interesting. In verses 5 through 8, you see it starts in verse 5 with a question. He says, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Look at verse 7. He says, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Foreigners devour your land. It's desolate. What Isaiah is looking at is, says, look, bad stuff has been happening to you, Israel. Okay, there's been mounting political, mounting military pressure against Israel up to this point. They've been attacked. There's been bad things happening to them. And what God is saying is, hey, that's my discipline. That's me warning you. That's me saying, you're out of step. Okay? And Isaiah's acting as that, that covenant enforcer. And he's saying, look, you're out of bounds. You need to come back. But God is saying, why are you continuing to rebel? Because when you rebel, you're going to get struck. Why are you continuing to do this thing when you know that, that it's going to bring punishment against you? What sense does this make? Stop it. Okay? And he says, look at your, your very city, Zion. There's a big theme of talking about Jerusalem a lot in this book. And he says, Zion is left all by itself like a booth in a cucumber field. Okay? So just a booth is like a tent. Okay? Just think of like this big field and then a little... Are there any defenses for a tent in a cucumber field? No. Okay, so you're left defenseless. He says, why are you continuing to rebel? He said, repent already. That's kind of the point. That's the implication. Okay, this stuff has happened to you because of your sin. But then look at verse 9. Okay, it says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So this is really interesting because in verse 2, God's the judge, right? He's saying, you're sinning against me. You're rebelling against me. You've forsaken me. You're acting like total idiots, okay? Because all of this is coming on your own head and you don't even get it. Your whole body's sick and you continue to rebel. And so he says, here, heavens, declare, O earth, what should I do but punish these guys? Okay, they've earned it, haven't they? They've, he's got the case, okay? They deserve punishment. But then in verse 9, what do we get? A few survivors. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Anybody remember? Did, did anybody get, was anybody left? Lot, okay. But besides Lot, no. And Lot wasn't really part of Sodom and Gomorrah, was he? Okay. Sodom and Gomorrah got completely wiped out. And, and verse 9 is saying, God has that same sort of wrath stored up for his people, but it's not going to be like it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. You get that? There's at least going to be a few survivors. So even with all this wrath that's going to come, there's grace mixed in with it already. So it says, were it not for God's grace, had he not left us a few survivors, we would have been completely wiped out. 
So we get this case against them, but we also get little twinges of grace. That's going to be sort of a theme through this whole thing. So look at this. It goes into verse 10. Verses 10 through 20, Isaiah is going to really hone in on one area of their sin, and that's how they practice their religion. Okay, and I love it in verse 10, he's going to, you know, he's kind of mockingly referring to them as the rulers of Sodom. Okay, that's how bad they are. So he says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now this is God talking. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, that is probably at the temple for a festival or something. When you come to the temple to appear before me, who's required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So one of the things I love about Isaiah is it's like God unfiltered. Okay? You get to, this is right into God's heart. And he's looking at them and he's looking at their religious practices. And man, they are doing a lot of religion. They're bringing in their bulls for sacrifices. They're coming to the temples. It's like they're having big conferences with big worship bands. And everybody's putting their hands up in the air and like, oh, this is so great. But he's saying, I hate your religion. I hate your sacrifices. Why? Because it's not genuine. Okay? They're at, at, if anything, you know, it might be legalism. They might be thinking, well, I have to bring these bulls. But probably at best, it's all just pretense. Okay? It's all just kind of works righteousness. Okay? So it's like, hey, you know what? I'm sinning, but as long as I do my kind of religious part and I play my role, everything's going to be fine. And God's saying, you're not fooling me. I hate, actually, I hate it. I would rather you not do any religion than, than pretentiously pretend like you're religious and everything's okay. I hate that. And especially he hates it because it's so hypocritical. Look at what he goes into verse 15. He says, when you spread out your hands, okay, in worship, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Look at this. Because your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So what God is seeing is for all of their religious activity and for all the ways that they wave their hands in the air and they're so, oh, I love Jesus, I love all of this, okay? That when God sees their hands, he sees them stained with blood because they have not cared about other people. That they've been unjust, that they've been taking advantage of people, that they've been doing evil things. God's saying, quit doing, you know what religion I really want? I want you to do good. I want you to care about other people. What good are me are these sacrifices when people are going hungry, when you are oppressing the, the, the marginalized and the poor and the fatherless and the widows, okay? Anybody remember James chapter 1 verse, uh, what is that, 27? It says, true religion that is pure and undefiled is this, that you care for widows and orphans and you keep yourself unstained from the world. Where's James getting that from? Getting it from places like Isaiah, 
God doesn't want your, religion, your religious practices in pretense. Okay, he wants a genuine faith. Look at verse, so he says, their hands are bloody. Look at verse 18. This is so cool. What color is blood? What color is blood? Red. Okay, what's another, what are synonyms for red? We got anybody in art school? Scarlet. Scarlet. Okay, look at verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. That word reason is like deliberate, dispute in a courtroom. Okay, let's, let's talk about the case that's mounted against you. Let's talk about the verdict. Here's the verdict. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Is that what you would expect? As, as angry as God has been, I hate your religion. There's this mounting case against you. Let's talk about, let's reason through this. Your sins are like scarlet, but I'll make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. First of all, you see that cool kind of Hebrew? Isaiah is like Shakespearean level Hebrew, if you didn't know. It really is, okay? And so you get that like, you will eat the good of the land or you'll be eaten by the sword. Pretty cool stuff, okay? Pay attention to that stuff when you're reading it. It's, it's awesome. But the bigger point is, okay, your sins are like crimson, but I can make them white as snow. But what do I want? I want willingness and I want obedience. In short, in one word, he wants faith. Not pretense, not self-righteousness, not evil, certainly. He wants faith. Faith is probably the biggest theme in the book of Isaiah. Okay? Faith is probably the biggest idea in the book of Isaiah. And God says, with faith, even though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. Isn't that good news? Okay? We don't even know how that's going to happen. We just know that that's, that's there. That's promised to us. It's awesome. In the next 21 through 31, he's going to talk about what's going on socially. So we just saw what's going on religiously, but now he's going to talk about socially. Look at verse 21. How the faithful city, talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is sort of um, a metonymy, a a stand-in for all of Judah. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Okay, so again, he's coming to this justice aspect. And do you see that there's a link between your faith, your religion, and justice? So, so he's linking together that, that their faithfulness in God would work itself out in faithfulness to other people. And unfaithfulness to God works itself out in unfaithfulness to other people. Injustice. They're full of murderers. You see that? It's kind of that, you know, what are, what are the, the greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's what Jesus said. He's linked those two. They're, they're the same thing. Loving God is loving others, and loving others is loving God. So if you want to know how you're doing in this relationship with God, in your relationship with God, you know, I went, to, I went to Passion over Christmas break. I go to all three services of church every Sunday. I read my Bible. I do all this stuff. But do you love other people? Do you want to give of yourself to care for other people? Do you consider others' needs as more important than your own? 
Because if, for all your religious activity, if you don't love other people, then this would say that your religious activity is probably pretense and not truth. Because it works itself out in loving other people. We love others because God loved us. Does that make sense? If God has so loved us, brother, so ought we to love one another. That's First John. And he's saying, look, this city that was faithful has become unfaithful. And it used to be full of justice, but now it's full of murderers. Look at verse 22. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Dross is like useless metal. Okay? The silver has become dross. Let me ask you this. If I, if I had a wine and I mixed it with water, who could take the wine out? Could somebody, could somebody do that for me? If I said, oh, sorry, man, this got all mixed up. Can you just take the wine out? I, just, I don't want the water. Could you do that? No. That's the metaphor. Your best wine has been mixed with water. Your silver has become useless metal. And there's no way to separate it out. That's bad news, isn't it? This is verse 23. Your princes, the people of power, the people with privilege, your princes are rebels and the companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, listen to this, therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. So this is, God's mounting judgment. This is wrath. I'm going to get relief on my enemies. You guys have become my enemies. Here it comes. Here comes my wrath. And look at how his wrath is poured out in verse 25. I will turn my hand against you, and I will smelt away your dross as with lie, and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. And afterwards you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Again, just when you expect it's going to be like, here comes just destruction. He says, I'm going to get, I'm going to get my revenge against you by cleaning you up. And I'm going to do the thing that nobody else could do and I'm going to take your alloy out. I'm going to take the wine out of the water. And, I, and all of your unfaithfulness, I'm going to turn into righteousness. But he's using that language of wrath, but it's wrath that's coming with, with grace and restoration. Again, how cool is that? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that good news? Look at what he says. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. The oaks that they desired are probably trees that they want, big trees that they wanted to cut down to turn into idols. Okay? So you'll be ashamed of your idols and you will blush for the gardens that you have chosen for you will be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water and the strong shall become tender and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. So again, we see this parallel between faithfulness and unfaithfulness. All of that wrath that God had on unfaithfulness will be destruction. You'll be like an oak that's planted aside, away from water that, water that withers up. It's kind of the opposite of Psalm 1, if you know Psalm 1. Okay, the one who delights in the law of the Lord will be like a tree planted by a stream. 
Okay, but, but if you're unfaithful, it's like you're cast away. But if you're faithful, I will clean you up. And did you see in verse 26, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. And afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So you see, at the first, at the beginning, you know what that's talking about? He's referring back to the very beginning of Jerusalem. Going back to the very beginning of when the city of Jerusalem became the, the place in the center of God's kingdom. Okay? And do you remember who was the leader at the very beginning when Jerusalem got, got started? Who was the judge, as it were? Who was the king when everything got started in Jerusalem? Anybody remember? Want to venture a guess? No, that's, those are judges, you're right. Okay, but, but the judges weren't in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was actually part of the Jebusites until a king of Israel came in and conquered Jerusalem and said, this is where I'm going to rule from. This is where my throne is going to be. It was David. David was the one that conquered Jerusalem and established it as this is the place where the king sits. This is where the throne is. And God is saying, for all of your unfaithfulness, I'm going to clean you up and I'm going to restore the throne in Jerusalem, so that it's like you have a king like David was. That's what he's saying, as at the beginning. He says, I'm going to give you another king like David. And David wasn't the king of a divided empire either. He wasn't the king over just Judah. He was the king over all of the tribes of Israel together. And so God's even promising, I'm going to reunite all of my people together under a king that's like David. Actually, a king that's better than David. So he's got this future looking, and, and so we see even in that little verse, is the beginning of this promise of a new king. And remember it said the first 37 chapters of Isaiah, okay, if you want to divide it up, the first 37 chapters of Isaiah are all about the king. And so we're going to look at earthly kings, and it's all set up to look at this, this king that's going to come, that's going to be like the king that was at the first. So it's looking for a better David, and we know who that better David is, right? Yeah. The one who's like, the, the one who truly makes us clean. The one who, even though our, skin, our sins are like scarlet, he will make us white as snow. Because he spilled his blood to wipe off our blood. Okay, so we're looking forward to that Messiah. Chapter 2 starts, and I, and I promise we're going to pick it up, so don't worry. I, I know you're looking, we're going to get through the first five chapters, so don't worry. Um, this is all, I'm, I'm setting up the dominoes so we can knock them down. Chapter 2, this is really cool. Um, there's another prophet in the Bible named Micah. Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries, so they were going around at the same time. Okay? Um, you could think of them, if they were musicians, they were on the same label. Okay? And, and so they're, kinda, um, they're, they're sort of part of the same clique, you know, if, if they're rapping. And so uh, this, these first four verses in chapter 2 are almost verbatim in Micah chapter 4. So it's like Isaiah and Micah are both singing this same song. And it was probably very popular, which is why probably Micah wrote it and Isaiah is quoting it. Okay? And, and uh, the reason is, is it's a really cool future promise, a future vision. So look at what this says. Okay? The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days. So this is in the latter days, in the future that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. What's the mountain of the house of the Lord? 
Anybody remember? Anybody know? Think what that is? The mountain of the house of the Lord. Was Jerusalem in a valley? The city of Jerusalem, the capital of God's kingdom, was it in a valley? No, it was on a mountain. And that's where God's house was, where his temple was. So he's talking about Jerusalem. There's a big Jerusalem theme in this book. And he says, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. Is that talking about geographically? That, that in the latter days, God is going to cause the, the earth to like shoot Jerusalem, Mount Jerusalem up higher than Mount Everest? Is that what it's saying? No, what's it saying? See, this is the way that you read prophets, okay? Don't just, don't just, you can't just read it, scan through it. You've got to think a little critically about what it's saying, right? Paul, what's it saying? The place, yeah, the place where the Lord lives is going to be lifted up to be the most important of all the earth, okay? And what's it say? That nations shall flow to it. Nations, not Jews, okay? All the nations are going to come into Jerusalem, all of the nations are going to come when that king who's like David is established and, and the, the promises of God's kingdom are lifted up. All the nations are going to come in. Anybody getting where I'm going with this? Okay. Is the church just Jews? No. Who's, who's also in the church? Everybody else. All the nations. So Christ has come to be the king and all the nations are going to flow into the church. That's already happening. This is being fulfilled right now. Isn't that cool? So look what happens. So he says, All the nations shall flow into it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isn't that beautiful? This is the vision that Isaiah saw. That once this king that's like David, a better David, is established, all the nations are just going to come into it. Come to Crave on Thursday. That's what Ephesians 2, the last part of Ephesians 2 is about. That there's not any division between nations anymore. That everybody can come in and say, let's, let's hear from the God of Jacob. Let's hear his word. Even when it says, come into the house of God, who's the temple of the Lord now? We are. This is a vision of the church. Okay? And it's a vision that's going to be finally accomplished in the end when, look, I love that. They're going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So it says that they're going to take their swords and they're going to turn them into tools for agriculture. That's the vision there. They're going to take their spears and they're going to turn them into tools for something constructive. We're not going to fight anymore. We're only going to be productive. That's a vision of heaven. That's the new heavens and the new earth. Isn't that awesome? There's not going to be war anymore. Now let me ask you this. Does this mean, okay, so the, this is a vision of the future, okay, Isaiah, Isaiah is seeing the future, right? You see that? In the latter days, here's what's going to happen. In the future, they're going to take their swords and they're going to turn them into plowshares. Do we fight with swords anymore? When, people, when nations fight against nations, do they use swords anymore? Do we use spears anymore? When we do agriculture, do we use, I don't even know what a plowshare is. Do we use plowshares anymore? I don't think so. We use tractors. Um, I don't know what a pruning hook is. Do we use pruning hooks? 
I don't even know what a pruning hook does, but no, I don't think we use those, okay? We, we have machines and, and we do that. So we fight wars with machines, we do agriculture with machines. But this is a vision that Isaiah's having in the future, right? He's seeing this. They're going to take their swords and they're going to turn them into plowshares. So obviously what that means is some point between now and when this is accomplished, we are going to move away from a mechanized society and we're going to move back to fighting with swords and spears, right? We're going to move away from doing agriculture with tractors and we're going to start... No. That's not what that means. This is where a lot of people get screwed up when they read the prophets. Okay? Is they will, they will make that... Look, he's having a vision of swords and plowshares. So, there must come a time when we start using swords again. So that they can be beaten into plowshares. Is that what he's doing? No. This is a metaphor. What's the metaphor here? That we're going to take our instruments of war and we're going to turn them into instruments of productivity. And, and that doesn't even have to be that literal, okay? Maybe it's just, we're going we're gonna to just take parts from our tanks and turn them into tractors. Or maybe it's just, we're going to stop using tanks. And we're going we're gonna to start being productive. We're going to stop fighting, and we're going to start working together. That's the point, okay? And so here, it's like, yeah, it's, it's so obvious, because we don't use swords anymore. But I promise you, people start getting weird about prophecy, okay? Look at the book of Revelation. He's talking about a dragon, that means, even though there's never been any dragons ever on earth, that at some point in the future, because he says he sees a dragon, there's going to be a dragon. Because I believe the Bible. I believe this is literal. Okay. But metaphors, in their very nature, though describing something real, are not using literal language. Don't get confused here. Okay. There's another part in Isaiah where he says that people are going, he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, and he says, no one will die as a baby, but they will die a hundred years old. Okay? Well, wait, but we're talking about the new heavens and the new earth. Nobody's going to die. So, so what does he mean that they're going to die when they're a hundred? Well, he's not actually talking about when they're going to die. Okay? He's, he's talking about they're going to live... We, we can't even understand because at their time they didn't, you know, certainly what Isaiah is not going to do is say, hey, so as, in the future we're going to develop machines that we fight each other with that, that work like tanks and work like this and then we're going to, you know, he can't even do it because they don't know what tanks are. So he's just using symbols for that. Okay? But like that whole deal with, anyway, I'll, we'll get there when we get there. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's how you read prophecy. And what's the vision of this prophecy? That under the Christ under the Messiah, the better David, the nations are going to come in and eventually we're not going to fight anymore. We're all just going to be part of the church and it's going to be awesome. And so he says in verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So he just said, this is what you're supposed to be, is this beacon for all the nations to come into and hear from the law of God, that they will all submit to the Christ. But then in the next part, this is what Israel actually is. Okay? It says, for you, God, have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. So this is where these two things get butted up. So he took this song that Micah wrote, and he took this vision that he had, and the song that Micah wrote was a vision of all the nations coming in and bowing down and listening to the God of Jacob. But in this part, he's saying, but instead... Israel has invited all of the nations in, and they're bowing down to their gods. They're worshiping 
idols. They're filled with fortune tellers. So it's the exact, yeah, there's lots of nations in Israel, but it's not the way that it was supposed to be. Do you see the contrast there? So he's invited in. Look at verse 7. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. And they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. This, again, is the mounting case against them. And so God is about to describe what's going to happen. This is the punishment. Okay? This is what God is going to do in response to their rebellion, to their idolatry, to their forsaking him, to their foolishness and sin. Look at verse 9. So, therefore, man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Oh, isn't that scary? Okay? Do not forgive them. They have continued, in spite of all of God's patience, to rebel, to forsake him. So finally, God's decision is, do not forgive them. This is the reality of sin. This is the wrath of God. He says, enter into the rock, you people that I'm not forgiving. Hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. This is talking about the day of the Lord. We're going to get into more of this as we go, but the day of the Lord is that day in the end. So after that day is when all the church, we're going to beat our swords into plowshares. But on that day, anyone that is unfaithful, this is what's coming for them. But it's also referring to a more immediate day when God is going to actively punish these people. This is also looking to the conquering of Jerusalem by enemy armies. Okay? He's calling that is a kind of day when they get conquered by Babylon and carried off into exile. That's part of it. And it's looking forward to a greater to the judgment day. Okay? So he's got a day, he's, he's against all that is lifted up, verse 13, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? For behold, the Lord of God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from, Je- and from Judah support and supply. 
So this is when that vision of the day of the Lord is getting mixed with the vision of the siege of Jerusalem. They've been cut off. Their supply has been cut off. Their water supply has been cut off. Okay, The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them and the people will oppress one another. Everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. This is how bad things are getting. They're so oppressed by other nations that they're just looking around for anybody to lead them. Because all of the leaders have been killed. All of the mighty men have been killed. All of the soldiers have been killed or taken away or carried off. Jerusalem is a heap. And they're just looking for anybody. Okay? In that day, verse 7, he will speak out saying, I will not be a healer. So this is the guy that they found to be a leader. And he says, no, not me. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. I read that and I think about our culture today. It makes me really scary. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They don't hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Look at this. Tell the righteous, the faithful, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. So even in the midst of all this punishment, he's saying, but you faithful ones, you little handful of faithful righteous ones, made righteous in the Christ that's us, you little faithful ones, tell them it's going to be okay, even though it's going to be hard, even though it's going to be... Filled with with hardship and struggle, it's going to be okay, but 11, woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. That's a comment about how defenseless they will be, that even infants could conquer them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your house. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. So they have called, they have brought this all upon themselves. And then there's a really interesting little snippet in here as he's going around and he's still describing. This is pretty heavy dope, isn't it? I know. This is, this is, this is real downer kind of stuff. Okay? It's got to be for the rest of the book. And it, and it gets harder. Okay? So he's just kind of described this is what's coming against you. And he's kind of focused on the leaders. He's focused on the men. But then it's really interesting is he also turns to the women. The women in this society, the women of his people, and he's going to say, I've got this against you. Look at this. It says, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. 
In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the rings, the feastal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Do you get what he's talking about? Fashion. Beauty. Walking around trying to exhibit yourselves. Okay, where is that where it says that, that the, the godly women aren't adorned with jewels or with gold, but with godliness? That's what God wants. But they're walking around, they're flaunting themselves. And so God says, you know what? You're going to flaunt yourself. I'm going to uncover all of your secret parts. I'm going to shame you. And I'm going to take away your beauty because things are going to come, become so bad for the nation of Israel. And we know, isn't this, that all of this, Isaiah was writing this 100 years before they were carried off into exile by the Babylonians. And all of this was what came upon them. And the, and the Bible is very clear that that was a judgment against them. Right? So at 24, it says, Instead of perfume for the ladies, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of, a, instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and, warm, and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. So nobody's left out. So you get a feel for what the culture is like at the time that Isaiah is writing this? I can't read this and not think about our own culture. It's just impossible. One that's, that's comprised of materialism and beauty and image. One that's comprised of oppression. One that's comprised of um, just, just a, a general lack of concern for other people, of idolatry. Okay, we're going we're gonna to keep on going. Okay, um, that, that this, is, this is the state, and God hates it, of religious uh, pretense of all of this. Okay, and God hates it. And he's going to bring judgment. He's going to bring very real temporal judgment in 100 years in the form of the Babylonians. Isaiah is warning them this is coming. Okay. And then you get a little paragraph like this in the midst of this. The end of chapter 4. And that day, okay, so talking about the day, the day of judgment. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Wait, didn't he just talk about rottenness and filthiness and belts instead of, you know, so he's contrasting fake beauty with the branch of the Lord. The branch of the Lord is that little faithful group, that little righteous group, that little remnant that has kept faith in the midst of all of this destruction, in the midst of all of this evil. It says, for all of that, and ladies, this would be especially in those verses we just read, God is what makes you beautiful. Your faith is what makes you beautiful. Okay, Men, your glory is not in your mighty deeds. Your glory is not in, in what you've accomplished. Your glory is not in your money or your wealth. Or your glory is in the Lord. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. And everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, 
Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and a shining of flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. Do you remember that when, and we went through this in the history, so if you were with us as we went through the book of Second Kings and Ezra and Nehemiah, that they got carried off into Babylon, didn't they? But some came back, right? That not everybody got killed. That there were some that were recorded for life, that there was a remnant that returned. Isaiah is prophesying that a hundred years before. Isaiah is prophesying that even though you're going to be carried away in the day of the Lord, I'm going to be faithful to a remnant. And you're going to come back to Zion and you're going to eat the fruit of the land. And it's going to be well with you and you're going to be holy and you're going to be glorious and you're going to be beautiful. What good news would this be for the people when they're actually carried into exile? And they're reading Isaiah and they're like, but some of us are going to come back. Okay? So they have hope in the midst of that. And even more, that true remnant is the remnant that when the, the new David, the better David, came, they recognized him as David, as the king, and they attached themselves to him. And they bore all of the fruit of that righteousness. Okay? We are the remnant. We are part of that remnant of faith. That's kind of the theme. And I love it. Did you see the Exodus language? That and God is going to be for them a pillar, a booth, protection, shade. He's going to be like them like he was on the day that they were first born out of the Exodus. Oh, isn't that cool? Isn't that cool how it all ties back together? I'm telling you, Shakespeare level. Okay? This guy's awesome. What we're going to do is, I'm just going to read through, because we've, we've seen that. He's going to reiterate what's going to happen in chapter 5. He's going to start with a picture of, um, of the vineyard of the Lord. Okay, and that's a metaphor. This is God singing a song about Israel, and Israel is going to be the vineyard. And you're going to see what he expected from his vineyard, what he got, so what he's going to do for that. And then he's going to go into a list of woes against them. Okay? And, and he's going to go and he's going to say, here's what I'm going to do in spite of, or here's what I'm going to do because of your, um, your, your lack of faith. Here's what I'm going to do because of your sinfulness. It's a lot of the stuff that we've just talked about. But then I want us to look at the very end of chapter 5, and it's going to set us up for what's coming. So I'm just going to kind of read through, read through this. I think um, you should be able to get this. But, but pay attention, okay? Pay attention to the language. Think about what it's saying. This is how we read the prophets. It's very, it's very poetic, okay? So, so think about it. So this is God talking. Or this is Isaiah talking, but uh, singing a song that God wrote. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. So God's vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for this vineyard to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. What's the difference between grapes and wild grapes? It's kind of a weird, wild is a weird word, isn't it? Wild grapes. Um, the only difference between grapes and wild grapes, okay, is there's like cultivated grapes and then grapes that grew on their own that didn't have any, any farmer involved with them. But didn't it just sound like this farmer was very involved with what they did? That he did a lot, he built walls around it, he tried to protect it, he built a watchtower in the midst of it, that's a place for him to live in the midst of his vineyard, and he looked for it to yield good grapes, but then it was like they had never even been touched by the farmer. 
what actually came out. It's like for all the grace that God was trying to give to them, for all of the help he was trying to give to them, what they gave back seemed like they never even knew who God was. That's kind of what it's saying. And now, verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. If you look that up in Hebrew, that's some really cool play on words he's doing there. In English, it's totally wasted. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. So woe to those who gobble up other people's property so that they can live all by themselves in big mansions. Does that sound familiar? The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late to the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and a harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, the grave, has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. Her revelers, so that's someone who's got drunk, and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice." And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. And then shall the lambs graze in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. All those pretty houses are ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with the cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. They're mocking God with their skepticism. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like the dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them, and he struck them, and the mountains quaked. It's very interesting 
is that Isaiah's writing is during the time of Uzziah. In the reign of King Uzziah, there was a huge earthquake in 750 B.C. Zechariah talks about it. Amos talks about it. You can look at Amos chapter 1, verse 1. Okay? Isaiah is saying that God stretched out his hand in punishment against them, and the earth quaked. He's talking in past tense. Okay? That's what he says. The mountains quaked, verse 25. Their corpses were as refuge in the midst of the streets. He's using like a current event to talk about this is God's wrath. He's already carried out this terrible earthquake. Because of your sin, look at For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. So even for the earthquake, there's more coming. There's another kind of earthquake, but it's not, it's not the earthquaking naturally. It's the earthquaking because of an army. This, that's these last verses. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary. None stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose. Not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint. And their wheels like the whirlwind. The Hebrew in this is very fast-paced. It's even coming across in the English. It's building. It's mounting. It's speeding. Okay? Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions, they roar. They growl and see their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea and if one looks to the land behold darkness and distress and the light is darkened by its clouds and seen. So we get this vision of rushing on rushing darkness on rushing punishment on rushing wrath for all of their sins. And the question that we're kind of left with is, what's going to happen? Okay, we've, we've heard this. We've heard of the case. We've heard everything that God's going to do. And, and, and it seems really, really bleak. It seems like God is really, really serious. But we've seen these little glimpses of hope. We've seen these little glimpses of a remnant. But it's getting dark, man. It is, it is crowding in around us. It's like fade to black. Is there ever going to be light again? And then we get into chapter 6, where Isaiah gets his vision, and God starts telling him what he's supposed to say. And it's in this context, just for a little teaser for next week, turn to Isaiah 9. Okay, Isaiah 9, the Christmas verses. Ganked out of context all the time, and we lose the significance of it. But look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone you have multiplied the nation you have increased its joy they rejoice before you why look at verse 6 for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray.
God, even as we read these, we're aware of our sin. We're convicted of ways that we have sinned against you. And our pretense and our self-righteousness and our desiring to be beautiful in our appearance and our materials and not in our faithfulness and our godliness, our God desire to be greedy, our desire to be haughty and proud, our desire to forget you, to forsake you, to sin against you. God, our sin is great, but your grace is greater. God, there's nothing that we can do to separate out our sin from ourselves. There's nothing we can do to clean ourselves up. But God, you are able to make us holy. You are the Holy One of Israel. And though our sin is like scarlet, God, you can't make us white as snow. You sent your Son to bleed for us to take away our blood guilt. Thank you for that child that was born. Thank you for the one that shines light into the darkness of our sin and your wrath against us. Thank you for swallowing up our wrath on the cross. God, help us walk in faith. Help us be this remnant preserved that believes in you. God, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. I pray, Lord, that all of us would go out this week and we would remember how much we have gained, how much we have in this better David. And Lord, would we be your temple that the nations want to flock to to hear from God? Would we be that vision of what your people are supposed to be? Would you help us do that this week and for the rest of our lives for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.